right. Well, would you pray with me? Lord, as we just sang, um, to our King be highest praise. We praise what we love in life. We praise what is beautiful. We praise what is good. Lord, we see a beautiful sunset and we say, that's amazing. We tell our friends about it. Did you see that? Lord, I ask that we would find you, King Jesus, worthy of the highest praise. God, I ask that you would make us a people who are obsessed with you and our relationship with you. Lord, stir our hearts now as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we are in Acts 4, and we're going to be in verses 23 to 31. Um, just before we uh, dive in, though, I just want to kind of let you in on what's coming up. So we're going to be in Acts for another few weeks, and then we're going to take a little break for Advent. And I have a five-part Advent series that we're going to be looking at. Um, as we come up on Christmas. And the Advent series this year is going to be on the five solas of the Reformation. The Reformation happened about 500 years ago, and it was a great, the Catholic Church had kind of strayed from a lot of the key principles of the faith, and Martin Luther and others were calling for reform in the church to come back to five things that they said were Sola, alone, that Christians ought to believe. All Christians everywhere, in all places, ought to believe these five things. And we're going to look at one for each week, leading up to Christmas Eve and then to Christmas Day. And these five solas are that Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. So we'll be looking at each one of those together, and uh, and that's what's coming up. Also, I just want to let you guys know, this is on the church calendar, but on November 20th, that's a Sunday, um, we are doing one of our testimony uh, sharing times, and so if you are a member here, and you have something that the Lord has put on your heart that you would like to share with your brothers and sisters in Christ, that would be an opportunity to do that. This could be a song. We haven't done that yet, but it could be a song that you wanted to sing or um, have sung, and we could do that. Uh, that you Maybe a song that we haven't heard yet that you felt would be really blessing to the people of God. Um, I also would encourage you, you know, the men's group we met on Friday, and we, one of the things we were talking about is where, in the morning, we were talking about where each of us is reading in the Word. Um, you know, I know Richard mentioned you're in First Peter. Jacob mentioned he's in Isaiah. Be thinking, brothers, you know, and sisters too, like where you're reading, if there is something that the Lord pressed on your heart, I want to share this verse and maybe a thought about this verse with the people of God. Write down your thoughts. It always helps to write something down, and uh, and that would be an opportunity to do it. So this is the, the 20th. We're going to take a break from Acts for that day as well. All right, so that's uh, kind of what's coming up right now. We're going to be in Acts 4, 23 to 31. 
Here, the early church of Jesus utters a prayer together to God. And they're asking God for some things. Now, when you ask someone for something, you should always take into consideration who you're asking. The, the, per, the person you're asking, who they are, and what position they hold, right? So, um, who a person is not only shapes what you ask that person to do for you, but how you ask that person to do something. Think about this. Would I ask, imagine I got a huge gaping wound. Would I ask somebody who's a plumber by trade to stitch it up? No, right? Nothing wrong with plumbers, but they stitch up leaks in your faucet, not leaks in your bloodstream, right? So you would want to go to Metawee, or if it was bad enough, straight to the ER. Although Carl would probably enjoy stitching up. He likes that. <laughs> so, so... Who you, um, who someone is shapes how, what you ask them to do. And it also shapes how you ask them to do it. I would ask my child to clean their room differently than I would ask the mayor to help us with something at our church, right? I wouldn't talk to the mayor like I would talk to my child. You would hope not. Right? He might not appreciate that. Okay, So there's a respect that comes when you talk to the mayor. Not that you don't respect your children, but there's an authority relationship there. Well, in our passage today, the disciples are going to ask their Lord for help. And their prayer to God, it's heavily shaped and even dependent, leans on who the God they're praying to is. On his character. So, in other words, the character of the God we pray to actually shapes how they pray. And it should shape how we pray, too. So, let's look at this passage. Verse 23. On their release, so remember they've been captured by the rulers of Israel last week. and They've been put in jail for the night, and then they threatened them. Don't talk about Jesus. And they let them go. It's like, bad, 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 you know. They're going to beat him up next time, and then they start killing him. But this is, there's a progression. Okay, so first, they say, don't. And so they let them go. And on the release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they, the group, heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Here's what he spoke back in Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They're all getting together in this city, Jerusalem. To conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Lord. Verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Let's sink in. They did what your power and will, Lord, had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. 
And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hands to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where their meeting was shaken, and they were filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, the main idea of these verses is really simple. God answers the prayers of his people. God answers the prayers of his people. That's like, what's this passage in there about? God answers his prayer, their prayer. Three things we'll look at. Which God, who is God, what do they pray, and how does he answer? Okay? So, which God did the Christians pray to? What's he like? What's his character that they express in these verses? And, and how does that shape how they pray? What do they pray to him? And then, how does God answer their prayers? So that's where we're headed. So first, who do the Christians pray to? What is this God like? Verses 23 to 28. We're going to look in verse 24 to start. The first thing we see about the character of this God is that he is God the creator. The Christians say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The word that the NIV translates Sovereign Lord here, it's from the Greek word despotes or despot. The word despot would be a being with total authority and control. So they're saying, oh, God with all authority, Lord with total control, you, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So this is an all-encompassing statement about God the creator. So in Genesis... God creates three spaces and he fills them. In days one, two, and three, he creates the three spaces, right? Land, sea, and the heavens. And then in days three, four, five, and six, he fills them with their respective creature. He fills the heavens with the lights. He fills the seas with the fish. And he fills the land with living creatures. And then sixth day, man, as well. Here you see that reflected. Lord, you made the heavens and the earth the sky and the land and the seas and everything in them. You are the former and you are the filler of all things. Every space that we can see in this universe, you have filled with creatures. And you are the God with all authority. There is nothing that you and I see, visible or invisible, in the heavenly space that God has not created that's not created by him and for him. So when we, like the early church, call on God's name, when we pray to God, we are calling on the name of the one who made every single atom in the universe, including in your body. Every speck of everything in this universe, from the furthest galaxy that we're just now getting pictures of, to the most microscopic part of the human cell, from the vast grandeur of a mountain landscape to the intricate details of a little flower, this God created it all. He is the God that we cry to. I don't want to forget that when we are praying. It is such a simple thing to pray. 
talk to God. And yet it is a mighty thing to pray. You are talking to the maker of all. The source of all life. Every breath in every living thing that breathes came from the uncaused cause of all. God. He is God the uncreated one. As we just sang together. The creator of all things. Seen and, ever, seen and unseen, the creator of every angel who serves him day and night, and every demon that is in rebellion against him, standing under his judgment. God is the maker. And yet, as mighty and vast and powerful beyond our wildest imaginings that our creator is, he is not so far above us, so far removed from us that we can't reach him or be in a relationship with with him. He wants a relationship with us. He is a speaking God. And that's the second thing to see about his character. Verse 25, you spoke. So you created everything and you spoke to us by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. So God is a speaking God. He's a creator, but he wants to talk to you and have a relationship with you. And he spoke by the prophet David, by his Holy Spirit. Now, there are various ways that God has spoken through the centuries. The author of the book of Hebrews writes it like this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'm reading Hebrews in my own personal devotion, so I've recently read this passage. God, Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers through the prophets, at many times and in many ways, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So, Jesus is God's final, ultimate word to us. He is the walking, talking, breathing, speaking Son of God come to communicate the Father to us. Jesus' words are recorded for us by the apostles in the New Testament. Words that we're reading right now in Acts. And they're God's final word to us. Any other word from the Lord must be measured by his words through the apostles and the prophets. They are the words upon which Jesus has built the foundation of his church. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone holds it all together. So, God is a speaking God. He has revealed himself, and ultimately he's revealed himself through his son, Jesus. One of these prophets that spoke was the King David of Israel. And King David spoke in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 2, in the Old Testament. And he said this, verse 26 of our passage quotes from Psalm 2. Why, David asks, do the nations rage? You know what it is to rage? Just look at the news. Look at what's happening in Iran. Look what's happening on the streets and the riots. Look what's happening in Somalia and in Yemen. Ukraine has the headlines. All over the world, the nations are raging. Myanmar, the Burmese police, and their army and the brutality going on there. I mean, it's tragic stuff. The nations are raging, and they were raging in this day. And so David's asking, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth rise and the rulers band together and they're doing it against the Lord and against his Messiah. Now in Psalm, Psalm 2, God is, David goes on to say that God looks at these nations raging together and he, at, at him and again, raging against his, his king and he laughs at them in the psalm. God laughs because ultimately they can do nothing to stop him or his Messiah from ruling over them and from bringing God's blessing to everyone who turns to him. So that's what Psalm 2 is about. We don't have time to go there and unpack it. Someday we'll preach through the Psalms. But God in the Psalm says, I've installed my king for the world. All these nations and their kings are squabbling and raging. And, and they even killed Jesus, right? But God has then raised him and installed him on Zion, in heaven, on a throne that's untouchable. He's an invincible king. He will rule over the nations, and he will bring blessing to everyone who takes refuge in him. That's what Psalm 2 is. That's the psalm that these um, early Christians are quoting now after they left the, uh, the jail of the rulers of one of these nations that's raging against Jesus. And they leave these... Nations are raging against the Messiah, and they leave, and they pray this prayer. And the reason they love this psalm, Psalm 2, is because it's all about Jesus' kingly rule. They saw, the early church saw what happened in Jerusalem, the nations raging against the Messiah, and even killing him, but God raising him and installing him as king. They saw that as the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Look what they say in verses 27 and 28. They say, Indeed... Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, and they did it to conspire, to plot evil, right? Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did, when they were doing this, conspiring, doing what they wanted to do. They wanted to kill Jesus. No one can say they did it. They were responsible for it. They were doing what they wanted to do. But they did, verse 28, what your power, O oh God, and your will had decided beforehand should happen. They did what God wanted them to do in the grand scheme of things. Notice here something that's really important for our biblical theology, for how we put our Bible together. The nation of Israel here is included with the leader the evil leader of Rome, Pontius Pilate, in their plot to rage against the Messiah of Psalm 2. Which means Israel, the nation of Israel, has been lumped with the pagan nations here under their wicked leadership. The whole nation of Israel in Acts has become indistinguishable from the wicked nations around them. As they work together to kill the one true king of Israel. When, pre when we preached through Daniel, we talked about this some. We talked about how the, this mishmash kingdom of Israel mashed together with Rome is the fourth kingdom in Daniel's statute. This is reaching way back to our Daniel's series. The fourth kingdom was the in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he dreams about. Um, there's a kingdom of iron and clay 
the feet and the legs are made out of iron and clay down below. And they don't stick together. It's a divided kingdom, but they're together as the fourth kingdom. And it's in the days of that kingdom that the Messiah comes from heaven and smashes all the kingdoms of the world like a rock from heaven. And his kingdom grows into a huge kingdom that fills the earth, a global kingdom. What we're seeing here in Psalm 2 and what the disciples are praying is the fulfillment of this. That the nations are raging together, Israel included, against the Lord and against his Messiah. And God is laughing because his kingdom has been set up through Jesus. And Jesus has been raised and he is untouchable and unstoppable. The point of Daniel is that God will bring down all kingdoms and replace them with the rule of Jesus. One day. And even now, God is in the business of doing that. God has lifted Jesus up to the heavens, to his throne, and Jesus is unshakable and unstoppable. And what the nations, what the disciples are drawing comfort from here as they pray this passage of scripture is the fact that though the nations still rage against Jesus and against preaching in his name, Jesus is king and he's unstoppable. Even what the nations planned to do against Jesus was according to God's will and God's power. It even fulfilled the plan that God had laid down through the words of the prophets. Which is the third thing I want you to see about the character of the God they pray to. Christians pray to the God who wills in power. See that in verse 28? They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So these wicked humans in Jerusalem... They did wicked things that they wanted to do and that they were totally responsible for. All over the writings of Acts, we read this refrain, you killed Jesus, right? You killed him. You are murderers. But when they killed Jesus, they were unwittingly fulfilling God's will, God's plan. It is God who wills in mighty power and he will accomplish his will even as human agents do their will. God is able, and he regularly does, turn evil against itself in his plan. Evil in this world is a reality since Genesis 3. It does its worst, and God turns it against itself. He bends even evil towards the defeat of suffering and evil one day. That's how God works, again and again in the story of the Bible. It is the massive theme in Scripture. God is not the creator of evil and darkness. As John, the Gospel writer, says in his Gospel, he says, God, or his letter to the church, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. However, the very existence of such a thing as light calls into being the concept of darkness. We would not know what darkness was apart from light. Darkness is not really a thing. It's the absence of light. It's a non-thing. Light is the thing. Darkness is just no light. Darkness is not an energy. 
Darkness is the privation, the absence of the energy that we call light. In it, God created this universe to communicate about himself. This is a similar way. That's why he compares himself to light. In a similar way, evil, wickedness, is the perversion, the twisting of what is good. Evil is not a thing in and of itself. It is the twisting, the turning of what is good. Evil is the distortion of beauty, of love. It is a twisting, a turning of everything that God the Creator Himself is in His beauty and goodness and love. The first Christians to write deeply about these things in the ancient church was a Christian named Augustine. He's written at length what I consider to be some of the most helpful things on this topic. This is 1,600 years ago. This concept of God and his relationship to evil and darkness and sin may bend your mind a bit. It might be a concept that hurts your head. It hurts mine. You may have to wrestle with it. If you don't wrestle with it in your Christian life, there's only really... Two options, right? Wrestle with it or just ignore it. Or use it as a reason to walk away from God. Most people walk away from Christianity because of this question. Most people avoid Christianity because of the problem of evil. If God is good, why is this world not good in so many ways? This is a problem. And yet, as many have pointed out over the years... You need a good God to even have evil be a problem. Okay? Because why is there a problem of evil if we are all just random atoms bumping around as a result of beneficial mutations at the will of the impersonal force of the universe? What, what is evil if one person kills another Survival of the fittest, right? I mean, what, we, we, you need something higher, some moral to, to standard to call into existence something good, something we call good, right? So we have to wrestle with these things as Christians. Is God responsible for evil? Does he create it? No. But he, by his very existence, defines it. Just like light defines darkness. Now, the early church is very clear, and the writings of the Bible are clear. God is all-powerful and is able to turn darkness and evil against itself to the defeat of darkness and evil. Imagine you have, this is an illustration, it's not original to me, imagine you're playing, you're, you're in a judo uh, match with somebody, and in judo, I've been told, I have those skills here, but one of the things you want to do is use the weight of your opponent against himself. Right? So he's charging, and you, he's intent on hurting you, and the heavier he is, the bigger he's going to fall when you flip him. Right? You use his own weight to his own defeat. This is what God ultimately does on the cross. 
God uses all the powers of evil combined together to kill his only son, and he turns it against itself in Scripture. So Jesus, the death of Jesus, is a prelude to God's victory over death itself, evil and sin. One story we see in the Bible where this is talked about is the Joseph story. Joseph's brothers treat him terribly. They sell him as a slave into Egypt. But God uses that to save countless lives from famine. Joseph puts it this way. He said, you meant evil. You wanted to kill me. But then you made some money off me instead. But God meant it for good to keep many people alive. The God of the Bible that we read about in the pages of Scripture is sovereign over evil. Now, if we want a God, as, as Christians, who has absolutely no power over the evil and suffering that befalls us in life, a God who just doesn't have anything to do with the darkness around us, in controlling it in any way. He just wrings his hands at all the terrible things going on and says, what are we going to do about it? Some people go that route. Some Christians write books that go that route. God has nothing to do with evil and suffering in this world. Nothing to do with it. That's not the God of the Bible. The cross... Is the worst evil you could ever think of. And it was God's plan. And yet God turns the evil and the suffering of the cross against suffering and evil. The death of the Son of God was turned into the triumph of God over death, right? The purpose of the darkness in creation is that the light may triumph forever. And so all, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. The early church believed this with all their heart. That's why they prayed to God here, because he is in control, even over their being arrested. God will use it for good, and we'll see this in a little bit with the death of Stephen. God uses the martyrdom of Stephen to make the gospel go global. He takes every effort that evil does to stamp out the light, and you stomp on the light, and the light radiates to the ends of the earth. This is God's way to defeat evil. He turns it against itself to the triumph of the light. So now verses 29 and 30, we're going to see what the Christians pray in the prayer. After we've looked at some of the character of God that they pray to, they, these verses start verse 29. Now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hands to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So, their first plea to the Lord here is simple. Lord, consider their threats, right? Lord, look at what they're saying. Do you see? Do you hear? Consider it. Another way of translating it is, is Lord, look upon it, right? Look, what, look at what they're saying. Consider it. This is our confidence, Christian, in any of the praying that we do. Our God is a God who sees and who considers. Who considers. He's watching right now. He sees what you are going through in your life. He sees every 
aspect of your situation from every angle imaginable, even all the angles that you have never considered. He considers it. Lord, consider us, they say. And Lord, give us power. Make us able to speak your word with great boldness, even in the face of threats. They might lose their jobs, their reputations, even their lives. Lord, enable us to speak, they say. Help us to be so secure in our relationship with you, Lord, that we don't care what people think or say or do. Lord, we care about what you think. Help us to speak. And then they cry this. They cry, Lord, stretch out your hand. That language of stretching out God's hand to perform signs and wonders, it's all over the Old Testament. And where it really shows up big time is in the book of Exodus, in the story of Moses and the rescue of Israel from the evil ruler Pharaoh. Moses often stretches out his hand to do signs and wonders on God's behalf for the people of Israel to save them from their slavery in Egypt and from captivity to an evil ruler, Pharaoh. Just like Israel is facing an evil ruler. If you are facing an evil ruler, a biblical prayer would be to borrow the language of Exodus and say, God, stretch out your hand again and do signs and wonders like you did through Moses. Now, do it through the new Moses. Exodus 14, 16. Raise your hand, God says, and stretch out your hand, Moses, over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. All through the Exodus story, from the dividing of the Dead Sea, and you back, go back a little bit to other stories, stretch out your hand, Moses, with your staff, stretch it out, stretch it out, and I will do signs and wonders for the good of my people and the downfall of the evil that's facing them. And so what you see here is the Israelites are praying to God and to their new Moses, who's in heaven, Jesus Christ. We've talked about Jesus as the new Moses multiple times through Acts. And they're saying, God, just like Moses stretched out his hand, now Jesus, stretch out your hand and do amazing things like you did in Exodus. Save us. Get victory. Heal. And help us to be bold. Look at what God responds in verse 31. This is the third thing, how God responds after they prayed. The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So, first thing we see is that God shakes the house. This is most likely a small earthquake that happens here. This kind of thing happens all throughout the Old Testament when God shows up. The ground shaking is like a drum roll event for God to come down in power and act and speak to his people. So here's an example. Exodus, again, hmm, this comes from Exodus. A lot of this comes up from the book of Exodus. Exodus 19, 18 to 20, we read that Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. 
as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So Yahweh descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. So there, in Exodus, the earthquake, the earth shaking is a sign that God is showing up. His weight is touching down. The earth shakes. Now, we know how earthquakes happen scientifically. I'll refresh your memory, right? There's tectonic plates all around the globe that are always in friction with each other, and they push and push and push, and when one pops, earthquake, right? Well, God, we, we know scientifically how that happens, right? It's not like God jumps off his throne, and when he hits the earth, it's like, boom, okay? <laughs> his feet shake the earth. No, but God created this world to help us understand what he is like. He uses natural processes all throughout scripture to communicate to us about who he is. Like God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. God's voice is like thunder. God's feet touching down and showing up is like an earthquake. And so, when God uses an earthquake... To communicate his presence, it's a way of getting his people's attention. He is there. He's communicating through the world that he made, through the very tectonic plates that he invented. Just like he did at Mount Sinai, God shows up and shakes the house, and the people are filled with the Spirit of God. Just a brief story. My brother Luke is a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And he tells a story about one time he and some of their team were way out in the tribes. Um, this was quite a few years ago now. And they were um, in a village, and they had to do a workshop teaching the Bible to these villagers. People had come from all over, and they were gripped with great fear. My brother hadn't really done this before, and he was terrified. They were, there was a powerful witch doctor. They didn't know this, but at the time, there was a powerful witch doctor who was basically trying all in his power to get this thing to fail. And so they went up in this house. And I don't remember all the details of the story, but this, I'm just, so I'm just giving the cliff notes. They went up in this house on top of a hill, and they were reading from the Bible, and they were praying, and an earthquake hit, and the house was shaken, and they were filled with a boldness to talk about Jesus that they could not explain. It was like Luke said he was so afraid, like panic attack level fear. And they read the word, they prayed God, they prayed this, and literally an earthquake came. Was it God stomping on the earth? No, it was a real earthquake that hit. But, like, I mean, of course, in Papua New Guinea, there's tremors all the time. They live on the fault line. So, so... But God used that to show, I'm here. I'm showing up. Was this just a random accident? I do not think so. The Lord of the universe communicated to his people, and they filled with boldness, and the witch doctor got saved that week. He turned his life over to Jesus. Mighty power on display. Stretch out your hand, they pray. Show up, and God does. And God fills his people 
with the Spirit. Now, these people had already been filled with the Spirit. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. So here we see something important in the book of Acts. People who've been filled with the Spirit can be filled again and again by the Spirit of God. So Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preached. Acts 4, 31, that we're looking at today. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. Acts 7, 55, Then Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked at the heaven and saw the glory of God. Acts 13, 9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at Elamis and said, he spoke to him, Acts 13, 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So that's just a survey of some of these examples. People who have the Spirit can then, like my brother experienced, be filled full of God's Spirit, His closeness, His presence, to empower them to speak for Him and to act for Him in the name of His Son, Jesus. So in conclusion, these Christians, they're praying to the God who created all that is, the, the God who is the maker of the heavens and the earth, the filler of all spaces everywhere, who is a speaking God, who spoke through the prophets, who directs all things according to his powerful will, even the death of his son, who turns the darkness against itself to the triumph of the light. This God they pray to, and they ask him, Lord, see, see the darkness that these leaders intend against us and stretch out your hand. Make us bold. And God does it. He answers it. So three takeaways. First, Christian, your prayers and my prayers should take shape out of the God of the Bible that we're praying to. Who he is. The more we grow in our understanding of who God is, the more we will grow in our ability to pray the type of prayers that he delights to answer. Prayers made in accordance with what he wants to see happen in this world. So in the prayer today, the church asks God to stretch out his hand and do wonders in Jesus' name. God loves to do that. He's got his own timeline for doing that. But he is able to do amazing things. Let's ask him, people of God. Let's ask him, stretch out your hand, God, as you did in the Exodus. Stretch out your hand. Do amazing things. He's got all the power in heaven and on earth. Pray bold prayers. Pray prayers for boldness. And in our prayers, the second thing, we can rest in God's powerful will. There is nothing in your life that could happen to you, that has happened to you, that has, will ever happen, that God cannot take and turn it for your good eternally. Nothing can happen to you that God is like, oh shoot, I didn't see that one coming. Or, oh no. What are we going to do about this? Even the worst of things God has a plan for. I want you to think about the worst thing that could happen to your body in this life. Cancer? Someone hurting you terribly? Losing a limb? Being paralyzed? That's all pretty 
bad stuff, but the truth is the worst thing that could ever happen to a human body on this globe is actually happening every day all around us. It's called death. Your body will rot away to dirt. That's a pretty rough thing to happen to the body, right? It turns to dirt. Every one of you will be dirt in a hundred years apart from Christ coming back. That's a pretty rough diagnosis. And yet, it's 100% of us will die because of the choice of Adam to rebel against God because of sin. And yet, what does God do with the death of his saints? How does God turn the darkness of death against itself? He turns it into resurrection life. He will raise our bodies anew. So there is nothing that our sovereign and all-powerful creator God will not turn to the good of his people. Not even your own becoming dirt. He will take your spirit to be with him. He will raise your bones to life. Even your death leads to resurrection. And don't just take my word for it. This isn't just my view of God. This is Paul's view. This is the Bible's view. Paul writes, Romans 8, 28... And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say in Romans 8, 38 to 39, some of the most precious verses in the Bible, he says, for I am sure, I am convinced, this is a man who's in jail, he says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is in control. He is good. He turns the darkness against itself in the end. Third, in our prayers, we know God hears us. In this passage, the Lord considers his people. He looks at them. He takes notice. And he takes notice of us. He's listening. Have you ever tried to tell somebody somebody something and they're distracted? They're looking at their phone. They're not listening. I've been guilty of that. Being distracted. God is not like that. He hears us. Here in our story this morning, these, these are just fishermen and random no-name people calling out to him. Men and women who've been threatened by the mighty rulers of their nation. Rulers who put their Lord Jesus to death on the cross. They have the power to do it, and they don't cower in fear at their threats. Nor do they thump their chests in self-confidence. We can take them. We're strong. No, they cry to the Lord who hears them. Lord, you see what they said? Now stretch out your hand. Do you see what Pharaoh is doing? Stretch out your hand. Do you see what these leaders are doing? So I encourage you, O Christian, ask God to stretch out his hand over your life, over whatever you're facing, and get glory for himself and good for your soul through whatever it is that you are facing. Let's pray that together right now for ourselves and for this town. Lord, we ask right now that you would stretch out your hand over our lives. 
over Granville, over Whitefall, over Hartford, over our entire region, I pray that you would stretch out your hand, that you would answer the prayers of your people, Lord, that you would heal people in answer to our prayers, that your name would get the honor, and that you would bring people the ultimate healing of restoration in you that they so desperately need. God, we all know so many people who do not follow Jesus as king. We ask that they would turn to him. Stretch out your hand and give us boldness to talk about you. Provide for your people in amazing ways, we ask. Lord, I pray that you would astound us with your goodness and give us the boldness to talk about you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.